Yeah. Well, he's incredible. So please give Jesse Mendoza a hand. Life Spring, good morning. One of the things about wearing masks is that when you have a beard, it gets stuck in your mouth at times. <laughs> it just does. But it's so good to be in the house of the Lord, gathered together with his people this morning. And uh, I want to welcome our online visitors as well. Uh, if you're joining us today, comment in the chat where you're watching or listening from. Uh, we welcome you. Thank you for spending this time with us uh, today. And if you're watching this recording later in the week, year, or years to come, still comment where you're joining us from. Church, would you give our online viewers a round of applause with me? Let them know that we appreciate them and that we're glad that they're here with us today. Man, so 2020. This has been a year like, and I said this last week, but it's like it's good to see your eyes and your eyebrows. And for those of you who wear glasses, I'm only seeing your eyebrows. <laughs> it's like elbow bump, keep your distance, foot bump, keep your distance. And I saw that some of you are still at eyebrows. You're like, man, I need to fix that. I saw that. Now, if you were born in the year... 2020, or under the age of four, and you're watching or listening to this 12 to 15 years from now, we're currently living in a pandemic. I know, right? There's this thing called the coronavirus, and some people call it the Roro, or the Rona, whatever the name is. And, like, have you ever been talking to someone you just met, or someone you know or don't know, and you feel like sneezing? It often looks something like, you can't let sneeze so quickly. Or how about this? They start sneezing, and they're like, I promise it's just allergies. And you're like, sure, sure, but you're trying to back up, and you're trying to dip and roll, but they're coming closer to you, and you're like, try Jesus, not me, because I throw hands. I'm, I'm kidding. And I know that, that went like, zoop, for some of y'all. And all I'll say is, if you know, you know. But for real, though, can we even get regular sick? Like, is everything just COVID? You know? Anyhow, what was I saying? The coronavirus of 2020. I won't get into specifics. You can Google this if you're not aware of it or if you're watching or listening 12 to 15 years from now. It has greatly affected how we do relationships and life with people. Not only in the church, but just day-to-day -day business. And everything, you can't go anywhere in the state of Washington without using a mask. Well, you shouldn't be. People aren't catching flights anymore. A lot of people catching feelings these days, though. You can't go to movies. A vast majority of parents, K through 12, children have become homeschool gurus. Yep, no kids in school from university all the way down. And parents who have been homeschooling for years are like, yeah, we've got this. And I feel, if I continue on that tangent, uh, as I'm talking, some of you are squirming in your seats, and you're like, don't remind me about the school year. But man, 2020, it's been a crazy year. And we've all experienced, felt, or witnessed some kind of loss over the last six months, wouldn't you say? And it's important to grieve and acknowledge the loss of those things. 
But you are here. You are here. And don't think I'm trying to make light of this virus. It's serious. And many of you listening, watching, and in here today are dealing with hard side effects of COVID. But you're here. God has been faithful. He continues to be faithful. Sorrow may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. And this is the day that the Lord has made. So may we rejoice and be glad for today and each new day that He has given us. The Lord is doing miracles. If you, uh, ever Sunday morning before uh, we have service, we actually have a team of us who gather here. And I think Jeremy said there were about 27 of us in here this morning. And man, so much of the prayers that came this morning just lined up so much with what I'm speaking about today. The Lord is doing miracles. He's doing great and amazing things. We had our drive through prayer about a week ago and the Holy Spirit spoke and showed up to the many who came through. I know of someone who was recently healed. And really ministered to when Pastor Joe spoke a couple of weeks ago. I'm sure you were blessed too. We had individuals commit and recommit their lives to Christ last week Sunday. The Lord showed up in worship and had so many words for us. Church, would you allow yourself to be used by Him today? And I'm not trying to gloss over this difficult season. I'm not asking you to do that. But allow Him to use you to be a blessing to those around you. We have worship night coming up soon. Mary just talked about it. Come join us. We talked about our Bible reading plan. Get signed up. The only successful way to be walking through this season is with and by the power of the Holy Spirit, grounded in prayer, worshiping, reading the Bible, and being engaged together in community. Because we've all experienced some kind of loss over the last six months. But God... But God, you're still here, and I need somebody to put their hands together if he's been good to you in this season. Put your hands together if he's been good to you, if he has remained faithful. Celebrate the fact that you are still here today. And so again, I ask, have you lost something over the last six months? Those of you tuning in online, have you lost something over the last six months? People have lost jobs, loved ones, lost being able to attend weddings, funerals, church even. Every aspect of life has looked differently over the recent months. I mean, some of you in here recently attended a wedding via Zoom the other day. Imagine that. Who would have thought? Only recently, we've gained back access to some things. Barbers, hairdressers. Come on, you should be more excited about that. Barbers, hairdressers. You're not? But even with access to these things and others, it's just not normal as we know. As a church, we've not been able to do community dinners at MVCC. Individually, we've lost something we probably took for granted at the time, which is the choice to just hug each other and shake hands, to walk about freely without having to use a mask. Church, have you lost some things recently? And you know, as an adult, the things that I lose now, they just hit differently. And what do I mean by that? Well, as a kid, if I lost my favorite toy, and different seasons in life, I had different ones. I had a stick horse. And if you don't know what a stick horse is, uh, let me tell you, you would go to the bush or the forest, and you'd cut a tree, 
about yay high, I'll say, and I'd take the lid off a bucket, drive nail through it at one end, and that was my stick horse. And I'd run around with that. I had a yo-yo, and this isn't any kind of yo-yo. It's, uh, they had these yo-yos where you put, like, a battery in it, and you, I, I don't know what you call it. I'll say yo-yoing. When you were yo-yoing, I don't know what you call it. But if you did it hard enough, it would sleep at the bottom, and it would light up. And then, kid always loved money, man. You used to always get, uh, back then, a dime was a lot, so you'd always get a dime. Or maybe a little bit more from your parents. And that was a lot. Those were some of the things back then that I used to cherish as a kid. I used to always save them. And I had marbles as well. I really loved my marbles. And if I lost one of them, whenever I found it, there would be this rejoicing. But today, if I lose it, I'm, I'm not losing stick horses and yo-yos. But I might lose a dime now and then. But it's like, man, I could have used that, but I move on. And you get accustomed to losing your dimes and marbles as an adult. Uh, Well, hopefully it's not just me. But but let me check in here real quick with you. I've got a list of things. Have you ever lost your keys? Ladies, have you ever lost your heel? Like you're going to this event, you're all dressed up, and your heel breaks while you're going to an event. Has that ever happened to you? Parents, have you ever lost a child somewhere? You know, have you lost your phone somewhere, your wallet? What about your contacts? And I'm not talking about the contacts in your phone, like for people who use uh, contact lenses. Have you ever lost a contact lens? Man, this happened recently to me when I was coming into work, and it's not good. It's like, I can't see. Have you ever lost a parking space? Like you head out to the shopping <laughs> you head out for shopping and you're there early because you're like i just got this shopping to do and you pull in and there's so many vehicles there and so you're driving around the parking lot and like there's parking all the way in the back but you don't want to do that and you're coming through and you see someone pull out but as you you're pulling out someone pulls in and you lose that spot has that ever happened to you all of us in some way or the other can identify with loss and today we'll be taking a closer look at Luke chapter 15. And this passage speaks to loss. And there are few, if any, chapters of the Bible more familiar to Christians and non-Christians alike than this one, I would say. So before we go into the passage's point, uh, we have 31 verses to go through. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, God. We thank you for this time, God. Lord, I pray that as we go into the passage this morning, Lord, there are words that we may have heard many times, God. And when you hear things so many times, it can be a comfort to you, Lord. They can be a comfort to us because of the familiarity. And so, Lord, I pray that as we go into this passage this morning, may we come into it afresh, Lord. May we come into it with fresh perspective, Lord, to understand the words that you have written and preserved for us in this moment. Ask that you do a unique thing this morning, God. Work in us as we are gathered here today, Lord. Lord, may we hear 
your words, Father. May it encourage, may it correct, and may it guide according to your will, Lord, by the Holy Spirit and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we, cha- as we study this chapter, it's important that we understand the events of chapter 15 in the larger canvas of Luke's gospel. And from there, to then find a way to come into events of this chapter with fresh assessment. For all of us, it can be difficult to learn when the material is so well known or familiar. And I've spent the last week looking to the Holy Spirit to guide me in preparation for today to share with you what I believe He's revealed through prayer and study. And if it's your first time joining us today, we've been going through the book of Luke. We're 15 chapters in, and like I said, we'll be doing the whole chapter today. So if you have your phone, your tablets, uh, your Bibles with you, if you can, please turn to Luke chapter 15. If you don't, we'll have it up on the screen for you. And I'll start with, how does Luke connect to what came before? Well, without going past the first three verses, we get our answer. Well, in part, at least. And Luke 15, verses 1 to 2, it says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisee and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Verse 1 tells us that all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to listen to him. This is important because one chapter before, chapter 14, Luke tells us how the very group that Jesus came to unfeather from sin has rejected him. And Jesus has now declared them an evil generation. In part B of verse 35 of chapter 14, Jesus says this, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. In other words, Jesus was saying that there was still, or there are still going to be those who hear and believe his message within the crowd of scoffers and hard-hearted Pharisees. That there will yet be a receptive audience for his words of life. Now at the beginning of chapter 15, Luke begins to explore who this audience was for Jesus' message. And sure enough, Jesus' message is received by sinners and tax collectors, who, might I add, are considered as the spiritually needy and outcast of Jewish Jewish society. They were marginalized as the lowest in Jewish society. And in the opening verse, we see this divide between the two groups playing out. The sinners and tax collectors were receiving Jesus. And let me pause here for a second, because maybe at times, at least for those of us, I don't know for you, but for me, someone who grew up in the church, at times... We may see, or I'm, I used to see tax collectors through this lens of Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was, he climbed up in the sycamore tree. See, you notice, you notice, but no, a tax collector was a Jew working for Gentiles, and that was bad. In that culture, the word tax collector was synonymous with sinner. Because tax collectors were Jews who had sold out to the Romans and collected taxes for them. In the eyes of the community, a tax collector was a thief. And here comes Jesus ministering to the sinners. And it bothered the Pharisees because they had concluded that Jesus could not be from God because 
God did not like sinners. In verse 2, we see their response. The religious leaders are grumbling. They're murmuring amongst themselves. Jesus, they say, is receiving and eating with sinners. And eating together in their culture was an intimate thing. Sitting and eating with someone was this very welcoming thing. In our society and how we do food, things are refined, won't you say? Like, you don't double dip, right? <laughs> well, at least you shouldn't, because what? Why don't you double dip? It's nasty, right? It's not proper etiquette. In our understanding of food, everyone gets their own little dipping sauce, but in Jesus' day, there was one dipping bowl. And you just pull out a chunk of bread and you started dipping and double dipping and eating after the guy who probably slobbered over his bread. It was communal. It was gritty. It was nasty, you might say, but it was intimate. So what the Pharisees are saying really is that they were rubbing off on Jesus by him sitting with them. That Jesus was giving them an opportunity to be made whole without due penalty being paid. They were objecting to the way in which Jesus was willing to restore these people to a respectable standing place in society by associating with them. Remember, the Pharisees were pious and all about the law. Their primary weapon against those who lived a life in open rebellion against the law and the rule of the Pharisees was to ostracize them from the rest of Jewish society. But here comes Jesus removing that stigma that these people carry. Has Jesus removed some stigma from your life, church? Hmm? The text says he welcomes them, which means acceptance, and he eats with them. The tax collectors and sinners were receiving the very thing they perhaps longed for most. And Jesus' love towards the tax collectors and sinners was leading them to true repentance. Romans 2, 4 says the kindness of God leads to repentance. So as we begin chapter 15, we're immediately struck by this obvious tension that exists between the acknowledged tax collectors and sinners and the unrepentant religious leaders. And this tension is created by how Jesus views and responds to each group, being willing to show mercy to the undeserving while overlooking those who apparently were worthy. Church, has he shown you some undeserving mercy in your lifetime? So in response, in response to the religious leaders and their inability to comprehend God's grace and mercy, Jesus tells them this parable. And this denoting singular, so all three stories in a sense go together as one. Jesus gives the examples back-to-back to address the Pharisees' inability to comprehend how God could find joy in reaching out to the spiritually needy and broken. In the first instance, Jesus sets the stage for all that follows. And again, it's important to note how Jesus begins. He says in verse 4, What man among you, or which of you? Jesus is essentially places the Pharisees in the hot seat by saying, you should be able to understand why God does what he does if you first appreciate what God sees when he look at these people. And if they could grasp what a shepherd sees when he discovers a lost sheep, they'd understand the heart of the Father. 
Now, it would have been easy for the Pharisees to identify with the life of a shepherd, though they themselves would not have lowered themselves to such a position. Shepherds were probably the most common occupation, and caring for sheep was the lowest of legitimate occupations, ranking just above the outcast line. Tax collectors and other sinners were considered to be just beneath them. Secondly, sheep, were, sheep are a great example of sinners. And if you spent any time around sheep, you'd know that they're very doltish and dull-witted animals. And I know that sounds harsh because they seem so meek and fluffy. But they are stubborn, straying, unpredictable copycats who absent-mindedly graze away as if they are independent of their shepherd and flock when they're not looked after. I've seen this. When I used to go, when I went to college, I lived on a farm with my aunt and uncle, and he had sheep and men. Every day there would be a different story with sheep. Honestly, you have to often, always tending after them. And so in thinking like a shepherd, the Pharisees could certainly appreciate why a shepherd would want to rescue the lost sheep. Sheep were usually counted at night, and if one was missing, a shepherd would go back out looking for it. And it's not that the shepherd doesn't care about the 99. See, he knows that they are safe together in the context of the flock until he returns. And Jesus uses sheep and shepherds to teach the Pharisees that this is the relationship God has with his lost children. God sees value in his flock and has love for them. Even while the sheep is lost, it's still a sheep. It's still the property of the shepherd. Yet the shepherd must take action to reclaim the sheep from the world in which it is lost. And when the one is found, there is joy over finding the one. To wrap it up, Jesus refers to the other 99 in this passage of Scripture. He refers to the other 99 as sinners who have no need for repentance. It's almost this mocking reference to the Pharisees who are actually in great need of repentance. Jesus references how they view themselves as not having need of repentance, which is why they find it so hard to understand why God rejoices over the sinner rather than over them. And because they couldn't understand how God sees people in this way as something worth saving, Jesus takes a step closer home with the second story. Luke 15, verses 8 to 10. He says, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. In this example, we see a woman loses a silver coin, and more specifically, a drachma. That's the Greek word here. The word here in Greek for silver coin is drachma. And it's about a day's wage, not a tremendous amount of money. But to find the coin, the woman does some extraordinary things. First, she lights a lamp. And houses in Palestine traditionally looked like this, so up on the screen. 
So it would be necessary to light a lamp even in the day to find something like a small coin. The text says she sweeps the house and seeks diligently, carefully to find it. And why? Well, in our modern day mindset, this might seem foreign. And if you haven't experienced this, uh, there are parts of the world, even today, there are houses where they have dirt floors, as it probably was the case back then. And the thing about sweeping a dirt floor, as I have, is that there may be leaves and stones and rubble that accumulates while sweeping. So she would have had to sweep the entire house, then separate the items that she had swept out until she found the coin. And she probably spent a great deal of time and effort significant in proportion to the coin's value, don't you think? So the extraordinary determination of the woman to find the coin can't be ex- explained entirely in the coin's value. It means more to her than a simple day's wage. Palestinian women often wore a necklace of drachmas around their necks as a dowry or as 10 days wages. So the coin completed a collection that had value as a collection, like something like a mint set. It's a case of the whole being worth more than the sum of its parts. And Jesus is saying it's like that for God and his children. Until he tarries, he'll keep adding to the collection, so to speak, until it's complete. However, they didn't understand why God looks upon the lowly and forgotten of the world as worthy of effort and cost to be saved. Had they understood, they would have appreciated the shepherd's happiness at having found the sheep. They would have appreciated the woman's happiness at having found her lost coin. But they didn't. So Jesus sums up with the story of the prodigal son. Let's read from verses 11 and 12. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This parable is referred to as a prodigal son because the leading story is of the son who squanders his inheritance. That's what prodigal means. It means wasteful. It means extravagant. So here you have this wealthy father who has two sons, but in many ways the behavior of the younger, the prodigal son, overshadows that of the older son, at least in the teachings I've heard growing up in church. And I've never fully realized until my study this past week, but the demeanor and conduct of the older son takes up eight of the next 21 verses in this chapter. So the first son asks his father for his share of the inheritance. He wants his portion of all that the father owns. And under Jewish law, legally, his portion of the estate will he would inherit would be upon his father's debt. The eldest son would get maybe about two-thirds, and the younger would receive about one-third. The younger son, by his action, is really saying that he has no interest in his father's business and way of life. He wishes to completely disassociate himself from his father and go on and do his own self. It's this very do his own thing. It's this very selfish and self-centered request. I want my share of the estate now. The Pharisees, being well-versed in the law, are doubly shocked 
I'm sure, by Jesus' account of the father's response. The father agreed the son to the son's request and gave the son the freedom he demanded. Verses 13 to 16. It says, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. You see, the son gathers his property together, squanders it, and then finds himself in ever-increasing desperation, trying to work his way out of his predicament. The son made poor decisions according to his own desires, and he ran out of resources, and the unexpected happens. There's a famine in the midst of his trials. He finds himself looking at the consequences of his actions. He finds some work, and he's working hard and doing everything in his power to make up and correct his errors, Yet, he still can't seem to earn enough to make good. He can't get ahead. He's still hungry. And he comes to his senses in the midst of it all. We see this in verses 17 to 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And just as Romans 2, 4 tells us that the kindness of God leads us to repentance, the same is seen here. His father's kindness is on his mind. It's on the mind of the young man as he comes to his senses. And the text says that while he was afar off, this demonstrates the heart of a father who is longing for his son's return. He ran out to meet him, kissed him, embraced him, and extended compassion to him. The father protected his son against the shame by taking the shame upon himself, just as Christ did the same for lost sinners. The father places on his son the symbols of sonship for a son who has been restored. He gives him a robe, a ring, and sandals. The son has regained his entire claim to sonship with the father. And what did the son do to earn it? He made a decision to repent. Express that repentance. And the father accepted him joyfully. As is the team in the other parables of when the lost is found. The father is ready to celebrate. He throws a party. And the celebration is the same as the celebration Jesus taught about in the first two parables. The joy of a repentant sinner, a son restored. But that's only the first half of the story. In verse 25 to 32, Jesus turns his attention to the other son. And the verse says this. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed a fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered, 
his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The older son is in the field. And to me, this is interesting because since we know that this is a wealthy family, and a wealthy family, they would have had a lot of hired servants, I'd say he had little reason to be investing time working in the fields. They would have had servants over other servants. But it gives a picture of a son working over time to please his father, going overboard to show his faithfulness and his willingness to work hard to earn his father's favor. In our Next Level class last week, Sunday, we talked a little bit about this regarding how we relate to Christ based on how we perceive our relationship with him. Again, you should sign up for those Next Level classes that are coming up. All right? They're good. Anyhow, He's so far from the house and so far from the events of the family that he has to ask the servant to bring him up to speed on the family's news. And when he learns that his father has shown grace and mercy and loving kindness to his wayward son, he becomes angry. This is his brother. I mean, in some ways, it's an understandable reaction to us. We might share his anger at seeing someone receive favor when they don't deserve it. Hmm? Has this ever happened to you? I've heard it placed this way. Grace only seems just when we're on the receiving end of it or find ourselves in need of it. But the older son couldn't understand that concept because the older son didn't mean grace. At least in his mind, he didn't. He had earned his father's praise, he thought. He's so upset, he refuses to join the celebration. He remains outside, pouting over the situation. The father graciously comes near to hear his complaint and treats him. And he says, repeating what the son said, he said, I have served you for years. I've paid careful attention to all your commands, yet I have never received any celebration for my effort. You never prepared me a goat much less a calf but you celebrate my brother in fact he doesn't even say my brother he's so upset he says this son of yours do you notice some of the important details in the conversation the son wants a celebration for his efforts and had there been a celebration he wanted the father to host the party but the celebration would have been with his friends not with the father himself in other words He wants the father to do things for him because he has earned them. There was no love, no shared joy, merely privilege earned. He was angry because someone less deserving was receiving the father's love. Even with all his protesting, the father is so gracious and tells his older son, Why are you complaining? You always had access to all that I have. Church, it's very possible to be living in the Father's house, doing things for Him, but still not understand the heart of the Father. 
Both these sons were sinners and in rebellion of the father. One was obvious and unbridled, while the other was determined to earn the favor he desired. One was brought low and brought to his senses, while the other remained indifferent and unrepentant. Jesus teaches this parable to illustrate not only what God will celebrate in the lost being found, but Jesus is also explaining why the Pharisees are not receiving Jesus' message. These three stories are all a part of the larger canvas of things. They all have a common theme, that of being lost and being found. Each also emphasizes the rejoicing that follows restoration. We see different elements in each one, all of which helps to paint the whole picture. And in Luke 19.10, a verse that demonstrates this well, it says the Father sent the Son to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. Church, as we get ready to close, I want to remind you of this today. If nothing else I said today stays with you, my prayer would be that this remains. We are the representatives of His kingdom here on earth. We are. Yes, the Holy Spirit ultimately draws the lost to salvation, but they won't hear the message of the gospel if we're disconnected from the lost in our communities. We are His ambassadors You are representations of his body in the context of your circle. This is an area the Lord has been challenging me in. As you may know, Debbie and I, we're apartment life coordinators at our apartment here in Edgewood. And basically, we put off three events every month to share God's love through relational interaction. And one of our monthly goals as coordinators is to report what they call spiritual connections. And the heart behind spiritual connections is really to share salvation with those in our community and of the hope we have in Christ through conversation and by loving our neighbors. And there's a very checklist aspect to this part of our report. But the Lord has really placed it on my heart to be expectant and praying for such opportunities, to be prepared and to be actively engaged in missional living. Let's then consider how these stories we looked at in Luke 15 represents the story of God's relationship with His lost children. All those who will one day be redeemed must begin as lost sinners. At this time, I'm going to invite the worship team back. I'm going to wrap up here in a bit. And earlier... As they come up, we talked about things we've lost. And the funny thing is that when we lose material things or immaterial things, it creates a hassle, doesn't it? You lose your wallet. You think about the credit cards that you have to cancel. You think about going to the DMV and nobody wants to go to the DMV because it's so much time out of your day. It's like almost a full day lost. But oftentimes we don't think about people who get lost. I mean, if someone goes missing, that's one thing. But people who are far from God, God sees them as lost. And Jesus wants us to always find those who are lost. And church, 
We can't do the work of the kingdom devoid of relationship. We can't do relationship at arm's length with people. Jesus doesn't do ministry at a distance with us. He does ministry up close and personal, right? That's what he does with you. That's what he does with me. John 3.16 says, For God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Church, the world we live in is already condemned as is. People who are lost don't need our condemnation. They need to see the knowledge of hope we have in Christ lived out in you and through you. So before we leave today, I want to create space this morning in the service for us to be quiet, each and every one of you. And even if you're tuning online, and if you're listening at this at a later date, this is for you too. I want you to take some time and prayerfully ask the Lord in this moment to reveal someone to you who you can start pouring into. Someone you can start sharing his love with. How we, we are all called to be fishers of men. It's not just only... And, and it's funny, in our society today, in our 21st century, for me, I tell you that, I told you earlier, this is something the Lord has been challenging me in. Really sharing this love of Christ with others. And I'll, I'll give you a few examples. Just the other day I was on, the, on a call with my barber. And I know you're trying to figure out what I got cut. But trust me, I have a barber. And uh, it said that I couldn't book him because he, his business wasn't available anymore. I use this app called Booksy. And... I got him on the phone. I said, how are you doing? This was just this past Friday. And he said, man, I had to close on my business just because it's, I, I just have some personal issues. And right in that moment, the Holy Spirit says, ask him to pray for him. And I asked him and I prayed for him right there in the car while I was driving on the freeway. And before the Lord prompted me to really be looking for these opportunities, I would have probably hung up and be bummed about not being able to go and see him this weekend. And that is what I'm talking about. I had an encounter with a young man at Costco a couple weeks ago, picking out avocados. And we just started this conversation. He's like, man, how do you pick the perfect avocado? And it just turned into this conversation about Christ. I've been, I've been meeting with him every, every couple of days online. Church, we all have people in our circle who don't know Christ. We all are neighbors. We talked about this this morning. They're all people we do not know. And we got to get in the trenches with them. We got to be close to them. This thing about distancing Christianity and I'll love you from a distance or come to my church. Coming to our church is great, but you carry the gospel in you. You carry the power of Christ in you. It is up to you. You can minister to them in Costco in Walmart, while being on the phone. So I want us to remain quiet in this moment. I don't tell you those stories to brag because the Lord has really been dealing with me in this way, really stretching me. And if ever a time, if ever a time in this time of COVID, I have seen people so looking for hope, and we have that hope in Christ. We have that hope. Would you share that hope with those around you?
people are so open to the gospel and so open to being prayed for. When Pastor Dan sent out the video earlier this week and he said, he told someone that God is moving in this region and it seemed that they couldn't believe it. He is. And it starts with you. It starts with me. It starts with each and every one of us. So let's be quiet before the Lord in this moment. And I'll ask the worship team to do this song, Communion, once again. And prayerfully, prayerfully, think about someone in your circle that you can start witnessing to. That you can start loving. That you're not so hurried to go from your door to inside or to pull into your garage. To be distant from the world around you. To not only have your neighbors and your contacts or somewhere visible where you can contact them in an emergency, but whereby you can really bring them into relationship with Christ. They're all his sheep. They're all his sheep. We were all once lost. Amen.